Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the first in STS's summer series of webinars. This series will run every other week and feature presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. STS would like to thank Medtronic for the generous support and sponsorship of this webinar and the STS summer series. Today's topic is early career surgeons, COVID-19, and the future. We want to try and make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. We have two ways that you can be involved. The first is by entering questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The moderators and panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. The other is through live polling. As each topic is introduced, we have an audience response poll to go along with it and we encourage you to participate in and answer each of the polls when they appear on the screen. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome one of our co-moderators for the session, Dr. Joseph A. Duraney. Dr. Duraney is the current president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the Director of Pediatric and Adult Congenital Heart Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Duraney, and let me turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Scott, and welcome STS members, colleagues, and guests. Thank you for joining this live STS webinar, which is the first of a new bi-weekly summer series that will focus on a variety of topics important to the cardiothoracic surgical community. The series begins today with a focus on opportunities and threats facing early careerists as cardiothoracic surgery begins to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. My co-moderator for today's session is Dr. Mara Antonoff from the MD Anderson Cancer Center at the University of Texas at Houston. Welcome Mara and let me turn it over to you to introduce our distinguished faculty. Thank you, Dr. Draney. We're pleased and honored today to be joined by colleagues from all areas of the United States and in varying practice settings to discuss how they're coping, both physically and emotionally during this time. And we look forward to hearing their insights on how cardiothoracic surgeons can thrive, even in the midst of this crisis. Our panelists today are Dr. Elizabeth David from the Keck School of Medicine at USC in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Melanie Edwards from Integrated Health Associates in Ypsilanti, Michigan, Dr. Gabriel Lohr from Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center in Houston, Texas, Dr. Helen Marie Merritt Janor, representing the Methodist Physicians Clinic in Omaha, Nebraska, Dr. Oleg Benga Okosanya from the University of Pittsburgh, and Dr. Elizabeth Stevens from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We have a wide range of topics to cover today, and we'll introduce each one with a polling question from the audience, followed by a question and answer session with the panelists. You're encouraged to participate in the dialogue by submitting questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Our first topic today revolves around career advancement and staying connected in the face of pandemic isolationism. We have a polling question that will appear on your screen and we'd like to hear from you. We'll give you about 30 seconds to answer. The question is as follows. What method has been the most effective for you to stay up to date with cardiothoracic colleagues and mentors during this pandemic? Your choices are webinars, virtual meetings, social media, phone, and email. We appreciate you participating in this poll and we'll just give you a few more seconds to answer the question before we delve into the questions with our panelists. All right, as you can see, it looks as though webinars are really popular among the audience partaking today, but everyone is also getting a lot of use out of virtual meetings, social media, and a little bit less so through some of the other strategies mentioned. So let's jump right into the questions. I'm gonna ask everyone this question and I'd like to hear from Dr. David first. What have you seen from your institutions in terms of funding to attend live educational conferences or cover professional association activities? In terms of changes to funding, um, there have been a lot uh, in terms of funding the academic medicine, uh, the academic side of medicine right now. Um, at our institution, we have a travel ban in place and um, we don't have any clear sign of when that will be lifted. And it's, I think it's unlikely to be lifted um, probably within this year. Um, and so, you know, I think that has significant ramifications for ourselves and our own travel. Um, as surgical educators, it has huge implications for um, people doing visiting rotations with us or even interviewing for our residency. Um, so there's really uh, significant implications 
for that. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether extramural funding opportunities for travel will exist um, and become available or um, whether or not really the virtual meeting will take over live meetings for the near near term. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing those insights. Um, before we move on to more details regarding um, what people are doing in terms of these missing meetings and how it's impacting people, I'd like to just quickly hear from the other members of the panel um, what your institutions are doing in, in terms of your ability to still attend conferences. If everybody could just um, share that with us. Dr. Edwards? Hi, um, good afternoon. So similarly to uh, Dr. David, we've had a travel ban in, in place since um, mid to late March, and there has been no indication uh, similarly as to when that would be lifted. Um, so they haven't necessarily given us any guidance in terms of our institutional funding, but the travel has been restricted. Dr. Lohr, have you been able to travel during this time? No, we've we've also had a travel ban as well at Baylor, um, and we don't know exactly when that's going to change. I imagine it's going to change pretty soon, um, but I still think that in my mind, until the end of the year, you're going to have to use a little bit of discretion in terms of, uh, of making sure it's very worth it because you're going to have to be traveling, you know, and and you'll be spreading yourself out throughout different communities and whatnot. So I think you'll still have to be careful even when the ban is lifted. Yeah. So given that it sounds like most folks have not been able to travel, we'd love to find out about what have been some of the biggest barriers to really growing and nurturing your professional network during this time when so many people are not able to travel. Dr. Stevens, would you be able to address that for us? Sure. I think um, for me in particular, the in-person meetings has been kind of the hardest thing. And, and part of that is when you're in your early seeing your colleagues as well and you don't know them well enough to email them or call them but you run into them at meetings they might come up to you after your talk you might be getting coffee and happy happen to be next to someone so those sort of spontaneous meetings and developing and deepening your network are often happening in these spontaneous you know occurrences at live meetings i would also say uh, and this is particular i guess for me at being at a new institution but not having in-person um, whether it's conferences or just kind of the ghost town that Mayo was for quite a while really, I think, inhibited my ability to build a network because, you know, you would usually run into someone in the hallway or after conference, you would, you know, see someone and go over a case or something like that, or people would be near your office and you would talk. Well, that type of network really hasn't been able to be developed um, even here at this institution because of the uh, measures that have been taken to decrease exposure. That's a really good point. Um, Dr. Okusanya, have you experienced similar um, situations as described by Dr. Stevens? I'm interested in your feelings about some of these barriers to really um, nurturing your professional network in, in the absence of these live meetings. Yeah, I think I've uh, faced similar troubles as uh, Elizabeth has seen also. I think much as she's discussed going to the national meetings and having an opportunity to see abstracts and talks and see what kind of research other people are doing and to sort of uh, broaden your horizons has really been a significant limitation. And then at your institution as a young surgeon, you know, you're oftentimes reaching out to referrals, going to tumor boards, some of which have been canceled or restructured, which has limited your ability to sort of continue to make yourself available and discuss cases and do the, and be in the sort of natural mill of work that continues to make your presence more felt in your institution. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, before we continue on with the questions, we do just want to remind the audience members about the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen if you want to submit any questions to us. Um, Dr. Merritt, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Um, have you missed anything in particular about the live meetings? And have you also found it difficult in terms of nurturing one's professional network? Or are there other things that you miss about the live meetings? Yeah, I mean, I think just running into friends, seeing familiar faces, getting a chance to have those uh, spontaneous interactions, as Dr. Stevens mentioned. It's also nice to have that protected time to really learn and to focus on um, just just seeing new techniques and new technology. Um, I'd say one thing that's been a pleasant surprise is the amount of connections that you have been able to maintain just throughout the country, people reaching out to each other to say, hey, how are things going up there? What would you do with this case, et cetera? Um, it's just been nice to have that web in place. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. David, any other thoughts about how these um, absence of meetings has has impacted our ability to network with one another and advance our practice? I would just like to actually echo what um, Dr. Merritt was just mentioning. I think it's been interesting to 
think about the way that I've been involved both nationally and locally during the pandemic. Um, I found myself on various hospital committees um, that you know, required a lot of uh, Zoom or Teams, whatever platform meetings. And, um, and then as a consequence, started reaching out to colleagues nationally um, to find out what other people were doing. And so it was, it was an interesting way of networking um, at both the local and national level. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out on, in the long run. Um, you know, I'm now on first name basis with our interim CEO um, because of participation in some of these right. committees. Right. So. so it sounds like it afforded you the opportunity to get involved in other committees and other activities you may not have otherwise had. Um, Dr. Edwards, have you used this potential increase in downtime to advance your practice in different ways? Or what recommendations do you have for the audience members about making the most of this current situation? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, we're not in the operating room as much. And so using the opportunity to catch up on, you know, most of us tend to be a little bit behind on our work. Um, um, so we certainly use, I certainly have used it um, to catch up on, you know, quality improvement projects that um, have been on sort of my to-do list and really also stepping back and looking at the big picture of, you know, what, what do I want to be doing in the next year? You know, what are the major things that I want to accomplish? Um, there's been a lot of, I think everyone's had, you know, perspective gaining and soul searching during this pandemic yeah. and prioritizing the things that are important and you realize the things that you really miss when you don't have access to them. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Okusanya, have you done anything different with your kind of potential downtime when you haven't been operating quite as much? Yeah, I've tried to take this opportunity to really focus on my research. So I've taken the time to really catch up on a lot of projects that have been sort of in completion, different phases, and really be aggressive about getting them done. I think what's changed, though, is like the research meetings have now become Zoom meetings. So I've been Zooming with some students and residents who have been all over the country to talk about our different projects and sort of still use that as a way to keep them engaged and keep the project moving forward and try to make the best, uh, make some lemonade out of some lemons in this time. Yeah, absolutely. I think while we all recognize that we want to make the most use out of the time and when we aren't operating, we want to do research, get involved in committees, do all these different activities. I think we also recognize that performing surgery is, is an important part of our job, not only for serving patients, but also for the financial bottom line of our institutions and our specialty. And I, I'm interested to hear how you feel about um, those changes that may have come in, with, in terms of how this lack of operating has, has impacted really the financial bottom line. Um, Dr. Merritt, do you have any comments to that end? Yeah, you know, I'm in a kind of unique situation where I'm starting a new position at a new facility. So trying to understand how that looks as you transition out of COVID. Um, it was interesting talking with the CMO and the CEO of our hospital and just learning how the bottom line of the institution. Excellent. Dr. Edwards, do you have any thoughts in this realm? Yeah, um, you know, similar to what Dr. Merritt mentioned, I think that um, the big challenge is going to be um, launching new projects or building new programs in the setting. Um, I think as cardiothoracic surgeons, we're, um, we have an incredibly varied skill set and we um, bring in incredible value to our institutions. So I think as a specialty, we'll be okay. Um, I think it will be challenging and I think there will be sacrifices that we will have to make, but it's going to require some creativity where we would usually try to accomplish, you know, program X with 10 people and now we have to accomplish it with five because of uh, institutional limitations. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great perspectives. Dr. Laura, I know that your practice setting is a little bit different than the practice setting of um, Dr. Merritt and Dr. Edwards, do you, do you have any uh, different perspective on this issue? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so I'm involved in cardiac surgery and transplant, and uh, and work in a pretty big hospital network at Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Heart. It, um, a lot, typically, a lot of cardiac rooms running, 12 to 14 rooms at any one day. Um, I I have been, you know, initially, of course, I wasn't surprised. Uh, okay. You know, everybody is down and, and uh, a month will go by and things will be better. But I have been uh, particularly surprised by how much something like this, um, the loss of elective cases can really riddle a program's uh, finances. Yeah. And 
I'm not an economic specialist or anything like that, so I don't want to comment too much on it. But uh, but it, it it has been interesting to observe that. I think um, it also has given me a sense of gratitude. We've had a lot of protection, obviously, for our, ourselves and for our colleagues, um, and for our our programs are highly valued, um, yeah. and we try to keep all the staff in there. Uh, you know, without having had to let anybody go. But you you do see a lot less team members available. So it, it, ha it does impact things, but thankfully it, it seems to be getting better actually. And I think it's, I think it's gonna be okay, but it was an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm gonna turn the, the uh, uh, conversation over to Dr. Duraney. I know that we've got another polling question coming up and some more great questions for our panelists. Sure, that was great discussion. There is one question out there that I think we could just, uh, we could close this out with, and it was with regard to any quarantine guidelines if you do choose to go to a meeting or travel against uh, the policy of your institution uh, would you have to would you have to take yourself out of the workplace for two weeks or whatever and I I suspect the answer to that is is individualized from institution to institution depending upon where you are depending upon whether you have symptoms what kind of screening protocols you have um, and, and whether you can be uh, tested uh, either just with the standard nasal swab or with uh, serum testing. Um, and I suspect that that will evolve like everything else has evolved with this whole pandemic moving forward. Um, we don't have a specific policy in place at Mayo for this right now, but I think you know, you're gonna have to see what your local government recommends and what your hospital practice guidelines suggest and, and go from there. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shift topics here, and um, the theme of this is is really working on the front lines, and it really I think is focused on the early career surgeons who perhaps maybe have had either more or expected more exposure from the younger surgeons because of the potential problems related to more senior staff if they were to get sick. So the the polling question is. To what degree do you feel you have been placed on the front lines and are at greater risk of COVID infection because of your early uh, career status? And it's just simply three, a three-question thing, either a lot, a moderate amount, or none at all. So it looks like uh, the results are back. Interestingly enough, there is, it looks like there's a fair number that feel that they've not been affected really much at all. I, I was um, a little surprised about that. I thought it might be, um, there, there might be more, either a great deal or a moderate amount. I, you know, I suspect that this may in part be related to, uh, you know, a small number of people uh, in your particular specialty or in your particular program where, uh, you know, if it focuses too much on the early career people, then, you know, the, you'd be working 24 seven, but, um, I think why don't we just uh, quickly uh, just go around, uh, uh, Dr. Lohr, what has it been like for you? Do you think you're doing more than your colleagues or equivalent or what should it be? Uh, yeah, not necessarily doing more, probably about equivalent. Um, so no major difference there in, in my particular program. And we have a, a lot of assistance with things like ECMO um, so I actually haven't necessarily been the frontline person for that um, because that would obviously be a, a significant risk. Um, so it's been, a, it's been pretty equivalent in my particular setting. Dr. Stevens. Well, I guess I'm in the minority here, but um, part of that is uh, the niche that I'm in and the institution. So we're a very small workforce and we were very worried that Joe and I could both get quarantined and that would be a very difficult situation. So uh, I made a very conscious effort to try to take the bulk of the exposure. So rounding, doing, you know, the chest closures, the ECMO washouts, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that I was happy to do, but we were very aware that, um, that could be a very difficult situation. And one other thing that, um, again, is probably somewhat unique to, to my situation, but uh, I had just become an attending and um, moved here. And I was very worried that uh, if Joe got quarantined, I would be the congenital surgeon at Mayo without backup and, you know, some neonatal disaster comes and uh, they get me and that's all. So, and I, I think other, you know, surgeons probably don't have such drastic, um, you know, situations, but I think it is true that, you know, talking to other people that you, as a, a early career surgeon, you don't necessarily feel like you could have the backup that you might rely on, whether you're in a case and you're in a, like trying to get um, a AVR in and a small route and you're kind of struggling. Well, 
there might not be anybody around that you would normally just call up and they would be in the hospital and could just give you an extra hand or even just clinical advice. So those are some of the things that um, kind of we've dealt with. Dr. David. So um, like Elizabeth, I'm in a little bit of a unique situation as well. Um, I'm currently 30 weeks pregnant. So I, um, it's been a real challenge. Um, I've had incredibly supportive partners and um, our department chair and dean have been very, very supportive. So I did a ton of telemedicine and um, pretty much kept my practice going. Um, but didn't come into the hospital for quite a few weeks. And um, I'm back now, but that set up for so many interesting com conversations with patients about how vulnerable they were as thoracic surgery patients with underlying lung disease during this time um, and how I was vulnerable. And um, even today, it's still, you know, it's still an issue. And it's given me, I think, a lot of insight you know, as a practitioner, um, into helping, helping the vulnerable, um, patients. And it, it's been, it's been interesting and very challenging for sure. Helen. Yeah. At our institution, we didn't, uh, create separate rounding teams, although I have several friends who did that at their institutions. I'd say probably the biggest challenge is trying to be innovative and, uh, try new practices during the COVID era, because it's hard to get proctors or it's hard to get clinical experts or even the reps that we rely on for, you know, why is this device um, doing this? Or do you have any suggestions here? And with limited people being able to come into the OR, that was probably the biggest challenge that I saw. Benga? So um, we were lucky to have relatively little COVID in Pittsburgh, um, but our call schedules were already set basically before it really uh, became widespread. And being the sort of younger, hungrier thoracic surgeon, I took um, the majority of the call. So you end up being just by definition in the hospital more with more consults, seeing more patients, having, you know, more sort of casual exposure. And that certainly is juxtaposed with the fact that a lot of us younger surgeons also are either home with young kids or my wife is 36 weeks pregnant. So we're also trying to balance those issues as well, as, which are different, you know, problems that are maybe some of our senior surgeons are having. So let's, let's just change gears a little bit. The takeaways from this, I mean, what uh, somebody made a comment about telemedicine, and I think that uh, every institution has sort of, you know, has dived into telemedicine and embraced it. And uh, what, what, do you, what would be some other sort of uh, positive takeaways from this beyond the telemedicine thing? Or are there any things about telemedicine in particular that you think are worth commenting on that uh, will stay here, you know, after the pandemic is behind us? Melanie. I think one of the fortunate things that has come out is an increased awareness and a culture of safety um, and team building and the need to really um, quickly deploy protocols and be uh, flexible and see that you can actually bring about clinical change where it otherwise would not happen by necessity. So um, recognizing that flexibility and, uh, um, going forward where previously we'd expect, you know, a new program to take, you know, 10 months to, to develop has been maybe not a directly clinical um, uh, benefit, but I think it, it's been a, a good benefit as well. Um, so, and then, you know, the telemedicine uh, effects, um, as we've discussed, are also uh, beneficial, especially for patients in feeder networks, uh, as we have in Michigan. Gabe. Well, I, I think, uh, Dr. Durney, the, the Zoom meetings and these platforms where we're all getting together is amazing. Uh, I, typically, we wait until the national meetings for it, which is great. I, I think we're going to have a lot more of this leading up to the meeting. The meetings are probably going to take on an entirely other level now. Um, so I think this component of it is fantastic. Uh, and having Zoom meetings, you know, in the hospital, we're, we're able to reach a lot more of our staff at various hours that, that can be unpredictable. So that's really been helpful. Um, I think we're learning a lot about how to stay safe too, like as, as physicians, you know, I heard an amazing statistic. We had something like over 100 intubations of ECMO patients and not one of our anesthesiologists got, can, got sick from ECMO, from COVID. So that's unbelievable. So I think we're, we're also going to be learning a lot about disease control and about advanced lung disease. But I think there are a lot of positives about it as long as we can stay safe and sane throughout the whole thing. What, what about telemedicine in, the, in terms of the practice of medicine, not, not, not meetings? Mara, maybe you, you could 
you could make a brief comment about that. I mean, I'm talking about patient physician or other health healthcare provider interfaces, which I think has been uh, has been actually, I think, an improvement in, in some regards. Absolutely. I agree completely. Um, working at MD Anderson, we see patients from all over the world. And certainly our telemedicine privileges right now vary state by state, but we have a lot of patients whom we see for surveillance after treatment for cancer. And the, the um, ongoing care of these patients is really highly predicated by the results of their imaging. And it's not really a physical exam, you know, as much as we would expect to be important when you're first meeting a patient or evaluating them either pre or immediately postoperatively. So the ability to provide telemedicine for these patients who travel from long distances to get a CT, have to pay in, to stay in a hotel overnight. Um, and frankly, sometimes we spend a lot of extra unnecessary time in the exam room with them simply because we feel bad rushing a visit when they've traveled so far and come such a long distance and paid the expense of the travel in the hotel. So I think we can be much more efficient and respectful of our, of our patient time. I do not think that um, the telemedicine can substitute all live interactions, just like we talk about a lot of the research meetings, other meetings that we do on Zoom, they are on, under the premise that we had an initial relationship. So I think that the physician-patient um, relationship does need to be solidified with a live meeting at some point for most things. But issues like lung cancer screening, that can be done via telemedicine probably forever. I mean, that's the type of thing where you can have the, um, the, the conversation about, um, about what you might find on lung cancer screening over telemedicine without taking up clinic space or exposing people to one another, possible germs and, and whatnot. So I do think that there have been some great conveniences for patients and actually some greater efficiencies for physicians. And I, I hope that we can carry on with a lot of those aspects of, um, of telemedicine going forward into the future. See, I think, you know, you talked about the screening and if you, if at least from the way that I've thought about this, if you go to the other end of the spectrum and you look at post-operative discharge following surgery, I mean, I think that the everybody, the, the, not just the patients, but the physicians, the nurse practitioners have gotten so accustomed to this that um, I could see shortening hospital stays even more with the ability to do this on a very regular basis for the first few days after they get out. And th this would be a big improvement in medicine in terms of uh, reducing the cost because hospital stay is such a large chunk of the overall cost, uh, you know, for an interface for a patient undergoing surgery. And if we can facilitate discharge by using this technology, you know, uh, it really will be, I mean, I think it's another sil silver lining. Let's uh, just, to, just to wind up, just the, the, the decrease in cases, has there been exceptional concern or anxiety about the reduction of cases, particularly for those that, are, that have been early on in their career for the last few months? Is it, uh, has it, uh, do you foresee this being a concern? Um, Benga. So certainly I think that is a legitimate concern. I think depending on where you are um, in your career, I, you know, I'm only two years out. So for me, continuing to do index operations on the robot is really critical on probably almost up to 100 cases. So having a month or two or three where you're slow definitely decreases not only your reps, but also I think importantly decreases your ability to necessarily teach the residents or the fellows how to get through the case because you're, you're sort of getting back into it when you do a case, you know, once in a month or every so often. I think, you know, now that we're sort of approaching things opening back up, now I'm actually in the opposite phase where I have a ton of backlog cases. So now I'm sort of catching back up and feeling really good operating every day and being back on the console. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting ebb and flow. Dr. David, any, you wanna add anything to that or? Um, I actually wanted to add something about the previous um, conversation. I think, the one thing that telemedicine has exposed, at least out here in California, is additional health disparities. Um, it works great for those who are computer savvy and you know can can muster the technology, but you know for patients whose English is not their first language, you know having an interpreter involved in a telemedicine visit, at least in our institution, is very clunky. And um, it can really limit our ability to help people who, you know, who really need help. Um, I do think there are some interactions that are great, and, and I completely agree. There's a lot we can do to save money and time with telemedicine, but I do think that it has exposed some additional disparities that haven't probably come out before now. 
Um, so I think that's just something for, for all of us to keep in mind as those will, those will be problems that we need to solve if telemedicine persists. Um, and then in terms of surgical volume, you know, I, I agree with Benga. Um, I think for those who, uh, of us who are a little further out, it's, um, it's less of an issue in terms of the slowdown, but certainly for people who are very early in their career and the graduating residents, um, you know, this has been a, a scary time where, you know, the reps that they're used to getting in the operating room are significantly diminished um, and they'll require, probably require additional mentorship, um, you know, during their tr transition into their new practice. All right, let's, let's, let's change gears a little bit, Mar. I'm going to pass it back to you to talk about work-life balance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we think about work-life balance, I know many of us, in addition to being busy CT surgeons, are also working every day to support kids and maybe even aging parents. And the balance between career advancement and family can be a challenging one on a regular, normal day, let alone during a pandemic. So let's jump into our next poll question. And here's the question. To what degree has the COVID pandemic hampered or further challenged your ability to effectively balance your career with your obligations at home? A great deal, a moderate amount, or none at all? We really appreciate you all submitting your answers to this poll so we can kind of get a sense of where our audience is at and how everybody's feeling uh, about this situation right now. So in terms of the responses to the poll, um, it seems as though we're split about about a, a third, a third, a third almost to to uh, individuals who feel that um, they've been impacted a great deal or a moderate amount um, versus none at all. And so I think it's fair to say that you know the majority are either impacted moderately or to a great deal, which is important to early career surgeons who may have a lot going on. As alluded to by Dr. Okasanya earlier, this is an age group where people are um, not only beginning their careers, trying to become comfortable clinically, but also may have small children at home, may have um, uh, new, new children entering their, their homes at any moment, uh, as is true for a couple of our panelists today. So let's start with a very specific question um, that I'd like to take around our panelists, and if you could just each quickly answer. Have you found fewer support services available to you during this time in terms of services that you may normally take advantage of to help you with your day-to-day work-life balance. And if you have found your support services available, what have you done to compensate? So um, let's start with Dr. Okusanya. You know, I think like most busy physicians, my wife is also a PM&R resident. We rely very heavily on things like grocery delivery, Amazon. We have a full-time nanny. Um, we have someone that helps us clean our place because we trade money for time. And all those things have no longer become options. So we've had to really, you know, become more flexible about what we do. We have a a chore schedule that we now stick to on the weekends. We're vacuuming, making sure that the house is in order. And then also, you know, trying to limit our shopping. I go, you know, every two weeks and really try to make sure that we have enough to last us a while. So it's been a significant change to our day-to-day -day quality of life. But, you know, with some flexibility and communication, it's been somewhat manageable. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Merritt, any thoughts in this area? Yeah, um, Sort of some of the same challenges. I guess for me, I, I use the time uh, going to the grocery store, running errands with my older son so that he has a little bit of time just one-on-one -on -one with mom. And, you know, it's, it's hard. You can't just pick up groceries on the way home from picking your kids up from childcare anymore. So it requires a little bit of foresight and planning. Um, the other big thing is um, missing out on the gym. I know a lot of us really rely on that to relieve stress and for wellness. And, you know, the moment that our gym closed, uh, we went and bought a treadmill and then um, <laughs> actually have a, a trainer that comes to the house twice a week with my 70-year-old mom and my eight-year-old son joins in. And so, uh, you know, it's just been different. Dr. Edwards, any thoughts about some of the support services that may have changed or um, different aspects of our work-life balance that we no longer have access to? Um, I think my experiences have been similar to the other pa uh, panelists. It's been mixed. Um, you know, there are fewer services, but fortunately that coincided with a time when we were doing one week in the hospital and one week out, not working, you know, doing a lot of telemedicine from home. So it allowed for a little bit more flexibility to, to catch up. But um, it's, been, it's been interesting and challenging and um, certainly have missed a lot of the things I take for granted or used to. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Laura, I know that you have a physician household and um, just like uh, Dr. Okasanya and that you've got um, 
children who require education and any thoughts about some of the lost services during this time? Yeah, I mean, we, we've, we're grateful. We have uh, someone who, who comes from our home and helps out with the house and we've, we appreciate her so much right now, obviously. Um, we, one of the things that we utilize to some degree is Uber actually with one of our older right. son. and, uh, um, you know, he's right at the age point where that's it, where it's reasonable. Uh, and obviously, you know, we haven't been able to do that uh, until actually just opened back up recently. But for the past two, three months, you know, he plays soccer all over the place. So it's been uh, it's been a challenge. And I used to have a good excuse to not take them. But now with caseloads being lower now, people look to me more often to take them from time to time. So so it's a lot of driving. But um yeah, but that, that's the main thing. I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, there are clearly less services. I think you have to appreciate the ones that you have had and hang on to them um, and be as efficient as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those of you who don't know, I have four children, age two, four, newly 11 and 12. And we have definitely missed out on having middle school, elementary school, preschool, um, you know, childcare for the youngest and uh, babysitters, Uber, as you said, and frankly, a lot of the other services we depend on routine grocery, grocery delivery, someone to help clean up uh, after all those kids um, has been something we've missed out on. And, you know, we're always looking for ways to compensate. But I will say that we have found a lot of silver linings, at least I personally, in this whole um, ch change in how we do our jobs. And for me, I feel like work-life integration is one of the things that has, has improved. And I, I'm really hopeful that, um, you know, some of these things can last. So for me personally, I feel like even if I'm doing the same amount of work, if I'm able to do some medicine from my office at home or do some meetings from Zoom, rather than going and eating alone in the cafeteria in between, you know, or use, you know, going for a walk in the hallway up and around the hospital, I have the opportunity to step out of my home office and maybe, you know, say hello to one of my children or be present for a meal with one of the kids, um, potentially even instead of, you know, having to worry about trying to get into the gym at the hospital, maybe go on a walk outside with one of the kids. So those are some ways that I have made um, use of some of the additional time outside of the hospital. I'm curious if anyone else has found silver linings and, and made um, more, uh, more use of their time outside of the hospital for work-life balance. Dr. David, do you have any thoughts in that regard? Yes. Um, despite living in LA, I don't have a bad commute, but even not having to do my, you know, 20 minute one way commute has made a difference. Um, I got a lot of exercise and in the same ways you just mentioned and taking, you know, taking a break between Zoom meetings and telemedicine clinic to go for a walk for 20 minutes or, you know, have a drink or a snack with a member of my family. Um, that those little moments I think have been important and helped, I think, with my own, you know, personal well-being. And so I, you know, I'm hopeful that there can be a role for a telemedicine clinic, you know, time in my future, just to sort of preserve that function of it, have an afternoon a week or something like that, where, you know, I can be working from home to have the flexibility for those little interactions, which are really quite meaningful. Dr. Stevens, I know you shared with us that you had actually taken on the bulk of the clinical activity during the pandemic, but during that time, were you able to um, find any silver linings for your work-life balance or uh, was it kind of the opposite for your situation? Um, I, would, I would say I was very grateful for a semblance of routine um, because I live alone and I was in a new city and I don't have a pet and you know, I was very stressed about my parents. And so I was very thankful that I could come in round at 630 and have kind of some routine. And I think that was helpful with my stress. I would say the biggest silver lining I've found is it reminded my, me of uh, my first love and this like not operating. And thankfully we had, uh, we still had some steady stream of patients. So we were never really not operating for that extended period of time. But even going a few days, I realized how much I really missed it. And I think it just yeah. kind of recentered me that, you know, we can get busy and, and be thinking about, you know, clinic or the next case. But like when you, you kind of go through withdraw and aren't in that happy place of operating and being on pump, then you realize, wow, this is really why I went into this. And, and uh, I don't know, it just helped uh, redirect me. That's great. Um, Dr. Okasanya, do, do you feel like any of these changes to 
our work-life integration during the pandemic are things that you'd like to see carry on in the future, even when our work life might um, take on more of a normal clinical load? Yeah, I think just like uh, Elizabeth David was saying, you know, having those opportunities to perhaps build in a, a virtual clinic in your in your week and just have that be normalized would be really wonderful because just like you said, there's lots of things we do with lung cancer follow-up and screening that don't really require you to physically see the patient and frankly, maybe more cost-effective and more time-efficient for you to do that from home. And like for the last three months, I've basically gone on a 20, 30 minute bike ride with my five-year-old son pretty much every day. And that's what he's going to remember from this time period. He's probably not going to remember all the horrible virus stuff. He's going to remember all the bike rides they had with his dad. And I think that level of integration for us as surgeons, for our wellness, for our longevity is critical. That's great. Dr. Merritt, what are your thoughts? I know that you probably are looking forward to being able to go grocery shopping more easily with your kids again, but are there any... um, any take-home silver linings for you, things you'd like to see continue after the pandemic that have come out of this recent um, change in our work-life balance? Well, I think not just uh, telemedicine, but also telemeetings. So, um, you know, one good example is we have a, a checkout at uh, Monday mornings where the whole team gets together and talks about the weekend. And generally, I try to not schedule myself for a really big case that day so that in case I get destroyed over the weekend, I have a little bit of recovery. But if you still have to go in at seven in the morning for meetings, that kind of defeats the purpose of having a rest day. So I think it's nice to have that flexibility to call in, still be able to do your job, but be able to come in a little bit later, maybe be able to take your kids to school or have a cup of coffee and reset yourself before coming in for the week. Well, that's that's terrific. Um, Dr. Laura, did you have any comments on this um, topic? Yeah, no, I think that when you think about our training, right, and, and a lot of us here have gone through the same pathway, it's, we've spent an inordinate amount of hours in the hospital, and even in uh, a lot of time away from our families, no question about it, even in the most efficient of times, I think, you know, I, I always pride myself in having struck that balance, but I think any moment that we can have during this time, to spend some time at home, even though sometimes you might feel kind of guilty about it, actually. Uh, but I think it's extremely rewarding. And, and as, as they mentioned, you know, it's uh, those are the times that their kids are going to remember uh, much more than any negative thing that's going on. So I, I think that's a huge silver lining. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to pass the baton back to Dr. Doreni for our fourth topic of this session. Great. Well, fa- just a reminder to the audience to submit some questions. We've gotten some that we've sort of tried to throw in there, but uh, we'll try to keep it going. The, the last topic revolves around uh, public health and inequities. And I think Dr. David sort of alluded to some of, some of this a little bit earlier, but um, you know, the younger crowd, I think a lot of the early career surgeons are much more dialed into social media and the internet and things like Instagram and Facebook. And so um, the, the first question is going to be, what is the role of the cardiothoracic surgeon during times of uh, national crisis? Um, and if we look at the answers here, we can, we can see what the poll says and, and launch a discussion and see where we can, where we can take it, because all of it is somewhat related. Great. So we, it's a, actually, it's interesting. It's a, a pretty even spread. Serve as leaders in all public areas. Serve as a leader for anything health-related or serving as a leader for issues related to cardiothoracic surgery. So this is, uh, obviously, this is a very, it's a very timely, it's a very timely topic because a lot of our participation is not necessarily local within your hospital, but it's outside of the hospital with a visible presence with the media uh, uh, or with social media. So what, what do, uh, why don't we start with Dr. David, since she alluded to this uh, indirectly, uh, the whole role of, of telemedicine and the internet and these non-face-to-face commentaries. What, what do you think the role of, what do you think our role should be? Where do you draw the line? Yeah, I I tend to fall into the category of um, that we should be leaders probably in the healthcare setting, um, and uh, you know where there's spillover into the rest of the world as appropriate. But probably we should be healthcare focused, as that's where our expertise lies. Um, and so you know early on. Um, we got the idea here to reach out to colleagues that we had a personal relationship with in in South Korea. 
and um, you know, we had a Zoom meeting with them and we videoed it um, and uh, published it on the internet so that other people could hopefully learn something from their experience with COVID. Um, and so I think things like that, um, you know, leading from the front and leading by example, I think is the role of a surgeon in this era. Um, at the same time, this was an interesting challenge to surgeons, um, being that it wasn't a trauma-related pandemic. And so I think initially some of us were a little lost in, you know, how do we lead this when it's not really our specialties that are leading the, the charge in terms of the medical management. So that was an interesting leadership challenge. But I think that, um, you know, perpetuating uh, good, solid medical information in the public space, in the public media, via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I do think that that is our role. Melanie? Well, I think it's always an interesting question because um, as surgeons, as Dr. Uh, David alluded to, um, we're most comfortable with surgery-related and medicine-related um, topics of expertise. But on the other hand, we're part of a community and we're part of a greater community and we interface with patients of varying different experiences and backgrounds. We interface with staff of varying different um, backgrounds. And so while we must be um, careful to maintain and strike the right tone, I don't think that it is inappropriate for us to show leadership in as many aspects as we are individually comfortable um, as cardiothoracic surgeons. You know, I've ha I have many patients who ask me about things that are completely unrelated to why they're here because they trust my judgment and they trust my opinion and they see me as someone who, um, may have knowledge in other areas or you know, has that authority and expertise. And I think we all carry that to some degree and um, can use it hopefully to the greater good. Benga. Yeah, I, I, I agree in the same way. I think, you know, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, we've all had pretty prolonged training. We've all dealt with very, very sick patients, especially cardiopulmonary illness. And your patients regardless are gonna ask you and they're gonna say, hey, what's my risk? What do you think? your family member, your friends, other people in the hospital. So I think it, you do have an obligation to some degree to educate yourself or to say, this is something I don't know enough about. I need help. Can someone educate me? And I think things like Twitter have been really great for that. There's been so much information about the pandemic that has been really valuable in real time and upfront. And I think it's been good to digest that information and to read those papers and to, you know, apply your mind as a as a, as a bright, hardworking person who knows about sick people, who knows about sort of the teleologic end of disease and how things can go and share that information in as much as you feel comfortable. Elizabeth Stevens. Um, I think I, I, as, as, as has been alluded to, the social media realm is gonna be increasingly a part of our practice. And uh, um, I've chosen to use Twitter for professional um, use only, so cardiothoracic surgery, and then have separate you know, accounts for personal uh, use. I think, um, especially with the unrest of late, I think it, it's a very difficult time. And I feel like um, how to manage that effectively and um, make a leadership statement can be very challenging. And I think on social media, you don't have an opportunity to discuss like you would in, in real time with a person. And I think making statements or even if they're very well intended can be taken wrong. And so I think that is something that I'm, I'm very sensitive to and I think can be very challenging. So I think for myself, I've preferred to reach out to um, friends and colleagues who have may, may be very affected by their recent events. Um, but I, I do agree that we're leaders, not just in you know our specific uh, field, cardiothoracic surgery, but also the healthcare community, and as has been discussed, um, in other ways, and how to manage that is challenging. Helen. So just like in the OR, I think that our team and the general public look to us for leadership. They look for our tone when we're responding in any sort of crisis, whether it's a you know, intraoperative hemorrhage or it's a global health pandemic. And I think it's important for us to each be passionate as well as educated in our responses and to try to keep a tone of um, collegiality um, and of, uh, of confidence. Gabe. 
I agree with everything that's been said. I think uh, uh, we do have to be uh, socially conscious as physicians. It's, it's part of the Hippocratic Oath, actually. But, uh, you know, it, it depends on your level of comfort, what battles you want to engage in. Uh, I think that I, I personally, I feel comfortable discussing, you know, for example, COVID-related health illness um, and how it affects cardiothoracic surgery. Um, and beyond that, I'd probably prefer to spend more time with the family and stuff like that than to, you know, engage in broader issues. But that depends on uh, on each individual person's mission. So, Mara, I know you're quite experienced with social media. You want to just maybe make a few closing remarks about uh, lessons, uh, pearls of wisdom for those that uh, use that as a platform to express uh, their opinions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, um, as Dr. Stevens mentioned, we want to be very careful about what we share on social media, even with regard to the diseases that we treat. We don't want to be misleading about how to treat a specific disease process, but I think we need to be careful about everything that we share. And there have been a number of published guidelines about how to appropriately use social media that have, um, you know, we've have advised people against um, talking about things that are political or about things that are controversial. And I think we need to clarify really what the role is of social media in this type of situation, because, um, you know, frankly, I think probably the better policy would be for people to think about, as Dr. Stevens said, to think long and hard about what you put on social media, because you shouldn't put anything out there unless you're comfortable with being a permanent part of your identity and a permanent part of your, your record and what people find. Because even if you delete something, someone can take a screenshot um, and it can be a part of your record forever. So I think the important thing, rather than saying, don't talk about this, don't talk about that, would actually be much more appropriate to say, don't put anything out on social media that you don't want to be a permanently part of your record that you wouldn't feel comfortable saying in front of your grandmother and that you wouldn't feel comfortable saying in front of your boss. And I think during times such as now, when the world is really a tumultuous place, a lot of us do have thoughts that we want to share. And there are a lot of people looking to us to be leaders. And so I feel that rather than saying we should avoid certain topics, I think it's most important to share thoughts that represent the leader who we want to be, the types of leaders that we want to be, the type of leadership we want to give to the world, and to share comments that are um, representative of a good example of our institution, of our practice, of our specialty, and of our families. And I think if you can follow those rules where you feel like you're making your institution proud and you're being the leader whom you want to be and making um, yourself represented in the light where you will always be comfortable, then I, I think that that's a good, good rule to stand by. Well said. Lamar, do you want to wind this down with your, your closing uh, question for each of the panelists or closing remark? Yeah, absolutely. We've been so fortunate to have such a really um, diverse uh, panel of individuals with really fantastic thoughts in, on all of these different uh, areas. And um, I'd like to ask each panelist to close with a brief personal reflection on their overall thoughts on what they've learned about themselves, about cardiothoracic surgery in our society while navigating through the COVID crisis and recent events. And ultimately I'm asking, is there one thing that you'd like us to see um, moving forward in the future, a change that you'd like to see happen in the future? So let's start with you, Dr. David. So yes, I think um, I've learned a lot. Um, I think one of the things that's really um, struck me is the, how much the patients themselves mean to me and um, how much the interaction with the patients from a, you know, physical sense, um, how much that really means. And it reminds me of why I went through all this training and why the hard days are worth it. Um, and I've really, as the interaction with patients lately has been different, it's really shown me that, you know, those personal interactions, that's what makes all of this worth it. And, and that's what I am in no hurry to give up anytime soon. Um, I love the academic aspects of my job, the teaching, the writing, um, et cetera, but I really, it's, it's all about the patients. So I'm very grateful to have, have learned that um, at this point in my career. That's terrific. Dr. Edwards, any take home points from you? Yes, um, I think specific to the COVID crisis, there really was an early all hands on deck, um, solidified sense of solidarity, both within and outside the hospital. And I think um, that that is something that we really desperately need to um, remember and um, keep hold of going forward. Um, you know, 
you know, I had, you know, neighbors reach out to me who I had not met who saw me in scrubs and said, you know, is there anything we can do to help? And just re um, being reminded of our common humanity um, is, is something that I, I really hope becomes the quote unquote new normal as we yeah. all adjust to new normals going forward. Absolutely. Dr. Lore, what would you like to see us take from these recent experiences as we move forward as cardiothoracic surgeons? So I think it, we, we can all probably, you know, uh, take comfort in the fact that this pandemic will pass. This will pass for sure, uh, but it'll take some time. Probably going to take till the end of the year. Um, and just embrace the challenges, embrace the learning opportunities, the silver linings. There are many of them. Um, and appreciate every day that you're healthy and keep focusing on your mission and your patients. Let's go to Dr. Okusanya. Um, I think uh, the other panelists have spoken really eloquently about COVID. I would say in regards to some of the other social issues that have been going on in America recently, I think it's, uh, it's an opportunity for all of us to talk about race and racism and talk about how that might affect us and our practice and our lives and how it might affect our patients. I think for a lot of people, it may be an opportunity to really engage in those conversations that might be uncomfortable. It may be a time to educate yourself, and it may be a time to sort of broaden your horizons about what your role is in your hospital and what your role is with your patients. So I think moving forward, I would say this is an opportunity for all of us to sort of take a step forward and be more proactive about our interactions. Thank you. That's incredibly well spoken and um, very, very timely. I really appreciate that. Um, Dr. Merritt, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share with us? Yep, I'm back. Um, yeah, I would say the real thing that this has driven home is just uh, reminding me of what's important day to day. So, um, you know, the things that are that are with you uh, day in and day out throughout this pandemic are your family, um, your colleagues, your patients, um, and your friends. And um, just to to really value those things, both in times of crisis and in times of calm. Great, Dr. Stevens. I think I found most encouraging um, is the collaboration. You know, I'm specifically within congenital, but the way we've been able to come together and write some guidance papers together, some other papers together, the World Society, you know, all these people from every continent on Zoom working on a project. And I think that was really heartening to see that this adversity was faced with unity. And I think that's in contrast to some of the other things happening in the nation. And it just is a great example for our field. Well, I, I listen. I would like to say that the, the the closure of this session could not have been better. With each of your individual comments, I will say personally, everybody had something very specific and very intentional that was said. Um, Mara, do you do you have something that you that you would want to say about what you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I I think we've talked on two major topics today in my mind, and I think the key take home for each of them for me is that I learned how important it is to integrate work and, and our home life. And I hope that much of that persists. And I think uh, with regard to, I, I'm not going to be able to be nearly as uh, articulate as Dr. Ogusanya, but I think it's really important that we've learned, particularly in our social media practices, that we surgeons are leaders in everything that we do. And I hope that we can all take that leadership seriously. And the fact that people look at us for our thoughts and our opinions and that, um, it's a privilege to be able to share our thoughts and opinions and to be taken seriously and respected. And so I think it's really important that we take advantage of, of the platform that we're given to share our ideas as cardiothoracic surgeons. Great. So words like solidarity, unity, um, uh, work-life balance. Uh, this is, uh, we are going to learn a lot and we will be better as a profession and we will be better personally when this is behind us. So uh, thank you for all the wonderful, informative comments from each of the, each of the panel members, and thank you uh, to you, Mara. I also want to thank uh, Medtronic again for sponsoring this and, and all of our webinars, and to the STS for hosting this uh, enlightening webinar and express my sincere appreciation to you, Mara, for co-moderating and really driving a lot of the discussion, and to each of the panelists who really have shared very unique insights and knowledge and to the audience for their attention and excellent questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but um, we did get uh, some of them in there. I believe all of us will take away a number of important lessons and the ultimate benefit will be to our patients, 
uh, and to our programs at home. So with that, I will turn it over to my STS colleague, Scott Bradley, for closing remarks about future uh, STS uh, webinars. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Duraney, Dr. Antonoff, and thank you to all our panelists today for their participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at sts.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. The STS has a webpage dedicated to career development resources and updates at sts.org careers. It features career articles, information about tweet chats, as well as career-related presentations and videos. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, June 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern time for the next webinar in our summer series. Thank you all again and hope to see you back here later this month.